You're listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is a replay from the virtual live broadcast series titled Women's Health 2020, Beyond the Annual Visit, provided by Omnia Education. Before beginning this activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Welcome everyone to this session on Women's Health 2020, Beyond the Annual Visit. We're going to be talking about individualizing treatment strategies for endometriosis. Hello, I'm Dr. Anita Nelson, and I'm joined today by Dr. Stephen Cohen, who is uh, at SUNY Upstate Medical School. Uh, and you can see our conflicts of interest as we're talking about this topic. Now, I think what's really exciting about endometriosis is how much we've learned in the last couple of years, how it's completely changed the way we view endometriosis. Not only are we focusing on its impacts on a woman's fertility, but on her quality of life. We've got new understanding of the pathophysiology of, of endometriosis. And very importantly, finally, we have new ways of treating it. So today, we're going to actually review rather quickly many of those important points. We're going to be looking at the factors that delay an accurate and patient-centered diagnosis of endometriosis. Talk about guideline recommended system assessment tools that can really help us make the diagnosis early enough so that we can make meaningful interventions. Talk about approaches that we have and the tools that we have to treat endometriosis and how to involve the woman's preferences, her goals, and her values in clinical decision-making and to develop for each woman that personalized treatment plan and to talk cohesively about all the benefits and the risks of each of the options that the woman does have. So we look to see the impact that endometriosis has on women just the numbers speak for themselves. About 10% of all reproductive age women have endometriosis. Uh, and if you add it up worldwide, that's 190 million women. Now, it's even higher in some subgroups. Clearly, women who have infertility, 50% of them, it's estimated, have endometriosis. And one out of every five women who is hospitalized for pelvic pain is found to have endometriosis. Now, what are the most common pain syndromes? Well, dysmenorrhea. Clearly, three out of every four women with endometriosis has a history of dysmenorrhea. But it also contributes very strongly to chronic pelvic pain, that non-menstrual pelvic pain. 50% uh, of women or more have endometriosis and dyspareunia, oftentimes high prevalence of, of endometriosis among women who have dyspareunia. Now, what has really baffled people for a long time is that there's not a clear correlation between the strength or the severity of the symptoms and the stage of the endometriosis that the woman is found to have ultimately. In fact, as it progresses, sometimes the pain diminishes, and sometimes the earliest, tiniest little gossamer adhesions can cause incapacitating pain. But I think here, the point is that there may be an association with some of those older markers that we use for endometriosis, like infertility, but for a woman's quality of life, it is endometriosis at any stage that we need to worry about. So where are we standing for? What is the classic image? And I think we all grew up learning that endometriosis was a pelvic condition that it was defined as endometrial glands and stroma implanted outside the uterus, okay? And when we tried to scratch our heads and figure out how could that happen, well, primarily it was attributed to retrograde menstruation or maybe to venous or lymphatic spread. Uh, and very importantly, 
that it was stressed that this diagnosis needed to be made surgically. Now that kind of constricted the access that women had to this diagnosis. And it made it more difficult for women to get the uh, diagnosis made and to get appropriate therapy started. So it's rather exciting to see these new developments in endometriosis, that what we've really come to understand that this is a chronic and very importantly, progressive inflammatory process that has systemic health impacts. Now, this is important. We're talking about it not just causing problems in the pelvis, but we recognize because it's an inflammatory process, it may have metabolic consequences. We've even seen brain changes and we've seen mood changes that are attributable uh, in many different models to endometriosis. And we've come to understand that there are genetic underpinnings, there are hormonal issues there too, and clearly immunologic causes of this problem. We've come to really appreciate that young people can also be afflicted with this. It's not just a condition of women in their 30s, that we will see the numbers that very early on, even before age 15, the women, young women who have what had been diagnosed as primary dysmenorrhea may actually already have endometriosis. And very sadly, we've come to really understand that there's at least a seven-year delay from the time the patient first presents with her symptoms to the time that the diagnosis is made on average. Today, we realize that there's much more reliance on clinical diagnosis that we don't have to have surgery to make this. And this democratizes it. It opens up the field to many more clinicians who are able then to make the diagnosis presumptively and move on with therapy that can really arrest the progress of this and provide the woman relief. And as I said, we have new medical therapies to offer people to not only treat the condition she has, but to suppress its progression and really give a long-term help to her. So Dr. Cohen, can you give us some insight? Why is it that there is this seven-year delay? Thanks, Monica. Thanks for asking that. It's a very good question. There's a lot of challenges with making the diagnosis of pelvic pain, of which endometriosis is just one aspect of the whole syndrome. First of all, patients are hesitant to even come in or discuss it. It's usually from experiences in the past and we're not blaming anybody here, not the patient, not the provider, but what happens is patients and providers become frustrated. Patients get better or they don't get better, and if they get better, they get better for a while, and then the symptoms come back. And when, when you're not making progress, nobody really wants to discuss what's going on. So patients come in because they're scheduled, and you say, how are things going? And they, they don't wanna bother you, and you don't wanna bring up the subject, as a provider because there's only so many arrows in your quiver that you can use to help these patients improve. So there's this hesitancy to even discuss it. There's varied physical manifestations. As you mentioned, some patients have infertility and nothing else. They don't have any of the other eight pains that they might have. Others have severe pain and yet the stage of their endometriosis is stage one because staging was set up to decide who was gonna have more infertility or more difficult infertility and had nothing to do with physical manifestations. There are nonspecific symptoms. 
so that basically some people have shop pain, some people have chronic pain, some people have intermittent pain, some people have pain all the time, and again, some people have no pain. So it's hard to go from that diagnosis. And as we all know, abdominal pain from any cause is not specific even by location. So that's a problem as well. As you mentioned, we always, in the beginning, years ago, decades ago, everybody had surgery before we did any treatment of this disease. We never treated without a surgical diagnosis. That's gone by the wayside, uh, and all organizations uh, will recommend treating medically prior to applying any surgical diagnosis, with the exception of patients who have major abnormal physical findings. You think there may be colon cancer or ovarian cancer. They have an acute episode of severe pain. Uh, certainly in those uh, situations, uh, it's important to uh, do the surgery first. So there's a lot of challenges. What about the current approaches to endometriosis? Well, you need to do, how do you work it up? And this, as you mentioned, expands it to all specialties, all women's health specialties. It doesn't just have to be a gynecologist because we've taken the surgical diagnosis either out or delayed it. So we take a good history. And why do we take a good history? It's to exclude other mimicking diseases. The most common, interstitial cystitis. But there's also colitis and Crohn's and fibromyalgia and irritable bowel and even colon cancer. So you need to take a good history and try just by history alone to exclude other mimicking diagnoses. You need to do a rectal exam. Even if you do a laparoscopy, you need to do a rectal exam because if you put a, a laparoscope in a patient's abdomen and look around, you won't see what's in the rectovaginal space. There could be severe endometriosis and yet the interperitoneal cavity looks completely normal. And in those cases, surgery again is important to do, but only in those cases. And then you want to design therapies, and we'll talk more about this as we approach the end of the talk today, that will help the woman with her current complaints and also lead to long-term suppression for, for this recurrent disease. Following imaging studies, we love to get imaging nowadays. For every disease process, we do imaging. However, in endometriosis, it's really helpful. It may be in the most advanced stages. It may be for patients who have an endometrioma, a cyst of the ovary with endometriosis. But in, in early endometriosis that can cause severe pain, you will see nothing abnormal. So the exam is more important than any imaging study, including ultrasound. There is no laboratory test that will help us. There are some laboratory tests that will confuse us, like CA-125, which is positive in many other situations. So that's some of the challenges that we have when we're trying as clinicians to make that diagnosis. So Dr. Nelson, maybe you can talk about the classic medical approaches to treatment from here. Thank you very much. I, I think that these are classical approaches to treatment, but they're still very valid first-line therapies. First off, I think we need to recognize she has pain. We want to be able to use something that relates to the pain that she has. She has inflammatory reaction. So an anti-inflammatory agent is wonderfully uh, appropriate to her, particularly if, if she's suffering from episodic pain. So we're not giving constant uh, NSAIDs. But, but for really getting down to how we treat the endometriosis itself, classically, we've done one of two things. We've either created a pseudo-pregnancy state or a pseudo-menopausal state. And the reason for that is in those situations, 
the endometriosis wanes and her problem is, is reduced. So how is it that we've created a pseudo-pregnancy state? Well, we've really relied on progestin. We can either give progestin-only therapies, and here usually we rely on contraceptives, don't we? We'll give an, an LNGIUS, we'll give the injection, we can give oral progestins, um, and maybe even by, by implants. Or we can put them together with estrogen uh, for combination therapies. And usually what we'll do is, is extended cycle to try to reduce the symptoms that she's having, particularly if she's having dysmenorrhea. Or we, as we said, we can create a pseudomenopausal state. And typically what we've done is GnRH agonists. And of course, we're limited there by six months. We don't want to cause osteoporosis, but it is reasonable to give estrogen and progestin add back to that GnRH. Other things that we have on the horizon that newly developed are, of course, the GnRH antagonists. Classically, the androgen derivatives, the danazoles, have been approved for the treatment, but again, very limited in time because of the side effects. But I think a real important message to our patients is these are treatments. They are not cures. This is a chronic condition, and it will progress if we don't treat it. So if we're looking at the progestin-only methods, Certainly, the uh, long-acting methods are very appropriate for women who don't want to have you get pregnant in the near future. I don't know how many people know it or not, but the sub-Q version of DMPA is actually FDA-approved to treat pain with endometriosis, and it was as effective as the GnRH agonists were at reducing all the, the different uh, ways that pain symptoms were measured. Adenogest uh, is as effective as the GnRH agonists. And this is a progestin that has very intriguing anti-angiogenic features. And you can see how that would help quell the growth of endometriosis. We know that many of these things have been tested following surgery to keep recurrences from happening. And clearly, both the implant and the IUD are very effective there. We know that analyses have looked at studies where combined hormonal contraceptives have been used, and we find that about two-thirds of women have had relief from pain and some improvement in their quality of life. But the, the limiting factor here is that the, the supporting data really was of kind of low quality. We know that overall the combined hormonal treatments do reduce dysmenorrhea, pelvic pain, and dyspareunia. Uh, and certainly any progestin uh, could be used, but maybe the more potent ones might be more effective or things that have lower estrogens. But the key here is either shorten the placebo days or completely eliminate them. Don't make her have any scheduled bleeding. And we know that the vaginal ring that's used continuously with its low estrogen levels give good cycle control and it's really kind of an interesting option in this field too. Dr. Cohen, would you like to discuss the GnRH agonists? It would be my pleasure to discuss those. So moving on to specific drugs for treatment, uh, the GnRH agonists and antagonists are the players here. And interestingly enough, on the combined oral contraceptives, to go back a minute, uh, there are many studies published in the 60s and 70s on endometriosis, uh, combined oral contraceptives, and pain control. However, there was only one randomized double-blind study out of all those studies done. Do they work? We all believe they do. But there's never been excellent studies or even very many studies on those products. But there have been on GnRH agonists and antagonists. 
So the agonists, most of you in the audience are familiar with, those uh, Lupron being the lead, but there's other, the Cinerol and there's other agonists that have been out there. So why would we use an agonist? If you think of what an agonist means, it means stimulation. And they're used in infertility to create ovulation. They give you a burst of LH, FSH, and then a rise of your estrogen. The reason we use those is because we had those. We didn't have any antagonists that we were able to use back a number of years ago. So these drugs are given, they're limited by their side effects, as Dr. Nelson mentioned. One is severe hot flushes if ADBAC's not used. Uh, that's usually a progesterone ADBAC now. And two is bone loss. So the classic GNRH agonists are approved for a six-month period of time but actually two six-month periods of time. So you could, if you wanted to, you could use them back-to-back -back and maybe get a year out of those drugs in pain control. Does the pain control last for a while afterwards? It does, actually, in some patients. Sometimes that's only six months. Sometimes it may be six years. So every patient's variable and hard to know, but the drugs are relatively well tolerated with that back, and usually we can reduce uh, the amount of pain in any of those pain groups that were mentioned earlier. So that's what's been used for the last two decades, basically. But if we move on, other agents have been used, and, and again, we've mentioned Danazol. It's an excellent oral agent. It's an anti-androgen. However, it creates all sorts of androgen side effects, and uh, those androgen side effects uh, for example, increased hair growth, and very few patients would tolerate that in, as we gave that drug. Aromatase inhibitors can be used because they block estrogen, right? Uh, however, they're off-label for that. They've never been studied in that. There's been some published studies, but no FDA submission. So aromatase inhibitors are being used, but they would be used off-label. And there are other antagonists now out, um, and we're going to talk about Elagolix in just a moment. The other two that you see on that slide are not FDA approved as yet, but there's, they probably will be in the short future. Treatment of endometriosis associated pain. The drug uh, Elagolix was approved in 2018 by the FDA. So it's been out for now two years um, and it is an antagonist. What does that mean? It means that the, when the drug is given, it blocks the receptors. And on this next slide, you'll see an illustration of that. So let's go into some details on how the antagonist, Elagolix, binds to the GRH receptor. The drug is given orally. It's absorbed very quickly. It reaches peak serum levels in an hour. Its half-life is six hours. And when you give the drug, it sits on the pituitary, on the receptor for GNRH. So it blocks the receptor and GNRH itself can no longer get on that receptor and stimulate the pituitary to secrete FSH and LH. And what happens when FSH goes down, then estrogen and progesterone go down. So on the left, you can see that uh, graphic, but on the right side, you can see the GNRH are the triangles and the elagolix is uh, the round balls, and you, those telephone poles are the receptor on the pituitary. And you can see how they block uh, and don't let the GNRH get to the pituitary, uh, all the receptors. Some of them are stimulated, some of them aren't. It's a dose-related response. The more elagolix you give, the more it blocks those receptors, and it's readily reversible. 
So if you stop the drug within a day or two, the estrogen level starts to come right back up uh, as that receptor is uh, freed up for uh, GnRH. On this next slide, you'll see how quickly Elagolix works. This is a graph of where you give the Elagolix on day one and what happens to your estrogen, FSH, and then your estrogen level. Within 24 hours, your estrogen level is dropping dramatically. And the pink form there is the low dose, and the yellow is the higher dose. And in both, you get a plummeting of your estrogen level to an area where the endometriosis should start to uh, disappear or at least not be stimulated uh, anymore. The drug's half-life is about six hours. It works in about one hour. It reaches peak uh, concentration in one hour, and it's readily reversible. So if a patient either doesn't tolerate the side effects, which are hot flushes, or doesn't want to be on the drug, or is not getting relief of the drug, or wants to become pregnant, if you stop the drug, she almost immediately returns to her pre-drug state. And here you can see the dysmenorrhea scores. We have slides on all the pains, but we're just picking this one to show you. Look how fast the pain drops. So when patients say to you, well, how fast is this going to work? How do I know when it's working? How do I know if it's not going to work? You can tell them in a month. By looking at that graph, you will see that their pain, regardless of whether it's high dose or low dose, uh, their pain drops dramatically in one month's period of time. And it, then it stays down as long as they're on the drug. There's no return, there's no spike back up. The pain stays suppressed as long as they're on the drug. The drug is approved for 24 months and that's based on bone loss. We don't want them to lose significant bone. Patients under this therapy lose about 1% of their uh, bone if they're on the drug for a six month period of time with some return back up after coming off the drug. So we have a wonderful uh, new drug that's available to help these patients uh, in a quiver. There are many medical therapies under investigation at the current time, and there's a lot of research being done on endometriosis treatment. Uh, Dr. Nelson mentioned that there's many inflammatory processes going on in the abdomen. In fact, the peritoneal cavity looks like a stew of inflammatory processes. What we've done so far in treatment of these patients is suppress globally their endometriosis response. But what's being done out in the uh, scientific field is that we're looking at stopping each individual inflammatory product or protein. And so people are looking at immunomodulators, angiogenesis inhibitors, proteinase inhibitors, estrogen receptor inhibitors. We're going to become over the next decade much more specific in how we treat what's causing the pain, rather than just suppressing globally. Dr. Nelson. Well, I think the next question we have is we have these wonderful tools, new tools, things we've never been able to offer women, that fast response, that persistent response to the problems that they are having. Uh, and I know you mentioned that, that the data show that it's not just the dysmenorrhea, but it's many of the other pain syndromes that can come along with endometriosis. Then the question is, how do we work together with our patients who have endometriosis? How do we optimize their care? And of course, today in our approaches, we want to be patient-centered and use the shared decision-making model as we're talking to people. Now, clearly the shared decision-making model is an approach, 
when clinicians and patients communicate with each other and talk about the best available evidence when making their decisions. So first we talk about what she understands, what her goals are out of this. So we make sure that share expectations are realistic. When you're talking about a chronic progressive condition and she asks you to cure her, she doesn't quite understand what's going on. Even surgery doesn't cure. So we need to make sure that she understands what we know about this condition now. And we want to introduce choice to her. We want to find out what it is that's bothering her the most. We want to make sure what her goals are. Is she trying to get pregnant now or does she not want to get pregnant? So that puts options often on the table for us. So focusing on her um, and letting her know that she is uh, contributing and, and ultimately makes this decision for us. So we use those options. And sometimes some of those patient uh, decision aids or support groups can be very important. So if we're aware of resources in our community, if we have brochures, uh, anything where she can learn more about what it is that we think that she's suffering and what her options are and helping her explore what her preferences are and making with her the decision what which pathway to take. So what are those components? What are the conditions? What is the condition? What are the risks associated with the condition? What are the benefits and harms of this, the options that she has? What alternatives? And, you know, how sure are we that they're going to work or not? And then making sure that we involve her personal values regarding those benefits and those harms. Uh, and really highlighting, I love this expression, what matters most to the patient. So we may be worried about her long-term infertility. She's worried about her, her dysmenorrhea. So when we're talking to her, we talk about what she's worried about first. And we talk about long-term implications later. And involve her in the decision-making at whatever level she feels comfortable with participating in. So our strategies for endometriosis care, again, as we said, is we really want to listen very attentively to the patient. What are her goals, her fears, what are her experience? What has she heard from other people? Let's develop that relationship we already have of trust and teamwork. And as I said, talk about using decision aids so that she can see or look more globally at what everything she has as options. Uh, we want to make sure that we're perfectly clear about the harms and the benefits that each of the treatments offer and make sure she understands what our goals are and then personalize that treatment selection. So the management plan, of course, must consider how severe is her symptom, what the potential is for recurrence, and here, of course, it's very high, her desire for fertility, when she might want fertility, and then in the, we're in the real world. You know, how much is this going to cost her? What are the side effects? You know, what, what routes of administration is she comfortable with? And we want to make sure that, that she really understands the risks that are, are common, like the hot flashes, and the ones that she's fearful of. It may not be on our list that the risk of cancer goes up with some treatment. It's like, no, it doesn't. But we have to address what her concerns are and reassure her if her risks that she fears don't have validity. And then, of course, we keep in touch with her. We monitor the effectiveness of the therapy. We look at how the tolerance, how well she's doing with it. Is she able to utilize it successfully and hang in there for the long term? And the bottom line, of course, is how effective is it for her? So in all of this, I think there probably are going to be some challenges using this new model. Right, Dr. Cohen? 
So there are a lot of challenges in shared decision-making as there are with anything we do in medicine. Uh, again, physicians uh, on average for an office visit uh, spend uh, seven and a half minutes. That's not necessarily what the physician wants or the provider wants to do. That's what's outside uh, pressure to uh, see many patients at a quicker rate. Uh, that's been placed on us by government and insurance. Uh, that may change in the new reimbursement systems, uh, but that remains to be seen. Physicians typically, or providers, typically use about one minute of a 20-minute visit when they do a 20-minute visit to talk about treatment and plans. The rest is taking the history and doing exams. So we sort of leave it as an afterthought rather than making it the focus of the um, visit. Physicians ask patients uh, if they have any questions, but only about half of office visits do they do that. So in general, we should probably end every office visit. Is there anything else you wanted to ask me? And patients recall only a fraction of the information you're giving them. And then we talk about potential benefits, how effective is it, and what's the risk? And we want the patient to share in this decision-making because if she's part of the decision, then she will more likely use the therapy. So we wanna talk about the disease consequence because people ignore that. They always wanna know about the risk of the treatment, but they rarely talk about the risk of the disease. And there's significant risk, obviously, with endometriosis. Besides chronic pain, there's risk of aggressive infertility, et cetera, et cetera. So we wanna make sure that she's not comparing it to nothing. She's gotta compare it to the risk of the disease process. We want to talk about those benefits of therapy, but we want to also talk about the limits of our benefits. If we bring the patient in and say, okay, I'm going to, let's try this, or we're going to give you this to, to treat your pain, and it doesn't work, then she feels like you don't know what you're talking about. If you say, we're going to try this, it may or may not work. It works in 25% of my patients. It works in 75% of the patients. It may not work in you, but let's give it a try. Then she understands that you do understand the therapy. And even though it didn't work for her, you still understood the therapy. And that makes her participate much better. What about potential harm? Obviously, we're always overemphasizing the risks of therapy. So we have to compare them to other risks of medication as we go. So we can talk about bone loss in some medications, but we need to talk about bone loss relative, for example, in pregnancy, you can lose up to 7% of your bone. So when we say you're gonna, you could lose 1% of your bone, that may sound like a large number to a patient and we shouldn't ignore it. However, we have to put it in relative terms. And this reduces mistrust it gets the patient to buy in on what we're talking about. It improves adherence to the therapy um, and outcomes usually become better. The care of a patient with endometriosis needs to be a team approach. Certainly the provider and the patient we've talked about, but we haven't really discussed other team players that can help these patients. One of course is a psychologist. Many of these patients are depressed and having someone who can help with their mental health is important. Your nursing staff who can help these patients when they come in the office, greet them, um, ask them how they're doing, uh, spend some time with them. Certainly as a provider, the nurse practitioner becomes very important as well as the physician, the radiologist who understands these patients, um, and many other people, including billing and um, insurance people, it becomes a very important team approach. And to help add to the team approach, uh, some of the internet 
uh, places that they can go. And one of the top ones is called Endoshear. It is a website for endometriosis patients. It has a tremendous amount of information, but it also has the ability so that a patient can come in and fill out forms before she comes in, get this information to you. So for example, what type of pain? Uh, what pain bothers her the most? How often does she have pain? And then she can read about endometriosis and what other patients are saying on this site. So it really is a, a wonderful uh, educational tool for our patients. When they make an appointment or you're seeing them after the first appointment, you should suggest them uh, some of the internet sites. Uh, and again, endoshare.com would be one of those sites that can help the patient, the provider, and the team deal with these patients. In summary, uh, I hope we've helped you learn some of the modern and new approaches to endometriosis patients. There's a lot being done. We're able to help these patients so much more than we were just a few years ago. And I hope that uh, we were able to explain some of that to you. Dr. Nelson, thank you for being with us. I wanna thank you, Dr. Cohen and our audience. And we will look forward to questions that you might have along the way. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash Omnia. Thank you for listening.